guys, welcome to the CP Junkie podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CPD Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. I'm your host, Lawrence Doan, and today we're joined by Dr. Riz Ahmed. He got his BDS in India in 2009 and is very passionate about his calling. He has been actively involved in postgraduate education ever since, as a student and as a mentor with special focus on early intervention orthodontics, chronic head and neck pain, um, dental and muscular, and cosmetic dentistry. Dr. Riz Ahmed, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me over. So, tell us about your CPD or dental journey so far. So, uh, because I was a dental assistant for a very long time before I got my dental license, I worked with some really, really good dentists in Sydney, right? Uh, Sydney and in Western Australia as well. And I saw what they did. So, I knew even before I started practicing that there was a lot more to dentistry than what we learn at uni. Um, I saw them get really involved with TMD, orthodontics, do some really complex treatment. And I didn't want to be your bread and butter dentist, right? There's so much I wanted to learn. Uh, the first thing I did as soon as I uh, got my license was uh, surgical extractions, of course, right? So the same course that um, a lot of your previous guests have done, the whole Cambodia, Malaysia thing, which obviously isn't quite popular now because of the whole refund issue. So I did that. And that institute, we won't name any names here, of course, but then that institute might have a bad reputation for payments and the management side of things might have dropped, but the clinical mentors they have are still excellent, right? So surgical extractions was the first one. Then, uh, because I've had a lo uh, lot of chronic head and neck uh, pain issues myself, migraines, the whole works, uh, I did a three-month uh, fellowship with Steve Olmos back when he could visit Australia. Mm. Uh, I then, you know, obviously orthodontics, aligners, a little bit of myobrace, uh, the comprehensive ident orthodontic course, uh, also done their pain management course and all that. And uh, right now I'm mostly focused on uh, cosmetics, so aesthetic and restorative dentistry with Chris Ho. Mm, yeah, well, let's kind of, let's bring it back a little touch. So you're a dentist, you're observing a whole a lot of different dentists kind of um, doing, like you said, a quite complex kind of treatment. And so that kind of inspires you to kind of um, want to kind of get into that space. But you went, when you came out and graduated, uh, well, not graduated, but accredited, um, you decided you want to go into surgical extractions first. Why is that? Most patients, when they come to you, right, they judge you on, on basic skills. They don't judge you on your complex treatment plans. They don't judge you on your uh, uh, pretty composite work or uh, porcelain work or, or a nice prep with the perfect margins, right? To them, if you're a dentist who can't pull a tooth out, you're a terrible dentist. Yeah. So uh, that was one area I wanted to get confident in. Um, and also, that's one area where if you get stuck, it's really hard to get someone to bail you out unless you've got someone standing right behind you, right? So uh, being bad at extractions would be very, very embarrassing. Mm. So that was something that you kind of knew. And then how did you kind of come about these particular courses? Was it through word of mouth or was it from something you were seeing online or? So 
our dental forums have been very, very helpful. Uh, so the surgical course, of course, was mostly through dental forums. Most of the courses I did after that was through personal recommendations. Mm. But the first surgical course I did was something I came across just on uh, DPR. Right. So after you did through the surgical side of things, you, you dived into, was it um, orthodontics? orthodontics? Oh yeah, orthodontics, yeah. So tell us about how um, you explored that path. Now, orthodontics has always been something I was interested in because I saw a lot of my mentors uh, do orthodontic treatment. It, and then uh, I spoke with Rob Lynn uh, in Brisbane, who obviously has done a whole bunch of orthodontic courses. I spoke with some other mentors. Uh, they recommended either EODO or IA Dent, so Derek Mahoney or Ken Lee. Uh, I ended up with Ken Lee, and that was quite enlightening because it's not just orthodontics that, you know, the way these guys approach orthodontics, they can change your entire treatment planning philosophy. So, so that was quite helpful because uh, there's something that's quite cliched and it's quite controversial as well. But then sleep, chronic pain, and orthodontics are uh, three heads of the same monster. So that's something um, I learned over and over again, and, and that was quite helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so talk to me about that. What do you mean by it's like the three heads of the same monster? So uh, people who believe in it, completely believe in it, people who haven't yet had that education can be skeptical about it. But if you think about it, uh, craniofacial growth is craniofacial growth, right? Uh, now, if there's cranial distortions, if your maxilla and mandible isn't where it's supposed to be. If you've got a strong underbite, then obviously your airway is compromised. If your airway is compromised, then obviously you're not sleeping well in most cases. There's other factors that impact your sleep, of course. Uh, but then if you have those things, it's all tied together, right? Now, once again, if you have a significant cant, then it stands to reason that in nine out of 10 cases, you'll have more pressure across one TMJ than on the other, right? And if you're if you've got more pressure across one TMJ, then it's, you're more likely to have a dislocated disc, a, a deranged disc, more likely to have chronic pain. Mm, fair enough. Yeah, so, uh, so parafunction, bruxism, of course, there's a the whole biopsychosocial model, but then um, sleep, craniofacial growth, and myofunctional factors are a key, uh, key factor in the whole equation as well. Mm. And so that's what you kind of realized after going through that course. Um, is that right? After going in through orthodontic kind of courses, you kind of realize this is uh, what I really didn't quite understand when I was maybe as a DA looking out from the inside. That's right. And, and most uh, undergraduate programs, most dental programs don't quite cover any of these things either, right? Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, for how did you decide to go with this one in particular? Because this, for a lot of graduates now, there's so many different orthodontic courses out there, you know? And how did you decide that you were going to go with this one in particular? So there's, there are a lot of courses out there and they're all good, right? So, and, and all of them add a little more to the knowledge that you already have. And this is consistent with what uh, Jeff mentioned in his chat with you too, right? Uh, with uh, IA Dent, I picked that because uh, Rob was uh, one of my dentists when I was managing um, practices for Bupa. And I could see that he's a really good clinician. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, he was one of the first CPD junkies who <laughs> really spent a small fortune on CPD each year. And yeah, I took his, his recommendation and then recommendations from, um, from some of my mentors, Dr. George Lee, Dr. Andrew Lee in Sydney. They've been, they've, they've done all of these courses themselves. 
And yeah, it was mostly through personal recommendations. Mm, yeah. And so after you complete this orthodontics, how did you feel? Did you feel like you felt compelled to do more orthodontic courses, CPD, or um, was it time to kind of dive into some of the other different courses that you were interested in? A bit of both, right? So uh, uh, the most recent course, orthodontic course that I did was with Simon Wong in Melbourne. And what he likes to say is, you don't, don't just dabble in orthodontics. Orthodontics cannot be your hobby. So no single course is enough. You need to keep studying. And as a GP who gets into orthodontics, it's a high litigation area as well. So you really need to keep on top of that, right? So I've done some more uh, orthodontic CPD after that. But then I also wanted to improve my restorative skills because the idea for me was always to be a cosmetic dentist, right? And cosmetics would involve orthodontics, uh, restoratives, and hopefully at some stage, soft tissue grafting as well. Mm, right. So that's where you're kind of going and seeing how things... I mean, you you mentioned your bio. It's, it's more about early intervention. So talk to me about that. So early intervention. Once again, now, traditionally, we've all been taught at uni uh, to monitor a patient that orthodontics shouldn't start or doesn't start or cannot start un until you've got all your adult teeth, right? And a lot of patients will say this as well because they've been, this has been hammered into them over and over and over again. But my child doesn't even have all, all his or her adult teeth. And once again, now what I'm going to say next is quite controversial. Uh, some literature shows that there is absolutely no link between alignment of the deciduous dentition and alignment of the permanent dentition which might be true, but then there's also literature that shows and also common sense that if someone's got a severely undersized maxilla or mandible, or if someone's got a severe class three or a severe class two, or a retrusive mandible or a bimaxillated retrusion, which is quite common these days, that's not going to fix itself. If a child is already lagging behind in their growth at the age of six or seven, they're not suddenly going to have a massive growth spurt and you know get Chris Hemsworth cheekbones and a jawline mm. by the time they're 13 or 14, right? So early intervention, uh, fixing what epigenetics messed up for you. Now, of course, with orthodontics, there's genetics and epigenetics. Uh, and the two massive schools of thought with orthodontics are genes are everything. You've got messed up genes, you will have braces. And then there's also epigenetics, right? Your environment does contribute to how you grow. And that's something we can fix with early intervention orthodontics or orthotropics or forward dontics. They're, these are different terms that different specialists and different gurus use across the world. But orthotropics, forward dontics, or early intervention orthodontics is something that can correct uh, skeletal issues early on in life. Mm. And that's kind of what dived you down the path of learning about myobrace, is that right? Or is uh, it the other way around? Uh, Myobrace was something that I attended on the side. Now, myobrace is controversial as well, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, myobrace is essentially, okay, I can't define myobrace because that could get it, get, get us both into trouble. Uh, okay, Myobrace works where it works, right? So diagnosis is key. Myobrace is not a one size fits all, even though that's what it's marketed as. Myobrace cannot be applied to every situation. Uh, however, as a habit correction appliance, it works quite well. Mm. So that was something I did on the side. Uh, so myofunctional therapy is massive, right? So myofunctional therapy is to myobrace what orthodontics is to Invisalign. Mm -hmm. Invisalign isn't all of orthodontics, but if you are into orthodontics, you would want to know what Invisalign or aligners are. Mm -hmm. 
believe in myofunctional therapy, myobrace is one of the tools or part of your arsenal if you choose to make it so. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And that, and that was something that um, you came to realize uh, after when you were doing orthodontics, this is something that was dived into in the course that you were doing at the time. How did you this, come about, you know, um, functional, myofunctional? Because um, a lot of people went... Myofunctional, exactly. Spot on. That's 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 the perfect question, right? That, that, that question I can answer, right? So myofunctional therapy was something that was mentioned across most orthodontic courses that I've done. And if you... So that is considered controversial. However, it's co considered controversial because there's very re uh, little recent re literature to support that. But if you open up your oldest orthodontic textbooks, right? Angle and all of that. Every book mentions myofunctional therapy. The reason it's considered controversial is because uh, some people believe that any treatment that's compliance based is going to fail. But yeah, myofunctional therapy was touched upon all the courses that I've done. And an offshoot of myofunctional therapy is myobrace. And I looked into that. Right. I follow what you're saying. Yeah. And then is that how there was an also offshoot into sleep apnea and head and neck pain? Is that how that kind of interest developed? Uh, sleep apnea, head and neck pain uh, are a key part of most advanced orthodontic, most comprehensive orthodontic courses these days as well, be it Derek Mahoney, be it Simon Wong, be it uh, Kenneth Lee. And um, most of these people uh, say this over and over, it's like sleep, Pain and orthodontics are three heads of the same monster. So if you have a properly grown skull, if you have a uh, if you have a well developed dentition, that's what Derek Mahoney uh, calls his course, right? Full face orthodontics. So if you have a well developed face, then uh, you are significantly less likely to have all these issues. Right. Yes, I follow what you're saying. So. That, that's how you kind of go into orthodontics. And now, whilst this is all happening, you're starting to, you're trying to aim for your cosmetic dentistry dream, which is why you kind of dive into more of the cosmetic side of things. So tell, tell us about that. Where's, where's that gone? So that one, uh, during the lockdown, of course, uh, most of us saw some really nice photos of dental work from across the world. There was a lot of free CPD. There was a lot of, uh, you know, we all of us had time to get into online lectures, you know, yeah. Spear, Maxim Belograd, the whole works. And uh, so I started uh, some veneer cases and all that. But then, um, of course, the big masters, right? So all these prosthodontists, all these aesthetic gurus, uh, there's Bharat Agarwal, there's Johan Choi, there's uh, Chris Ho, they're all involved with the same faculty. Uh, with the ACDP and they were starting this course. And I was like, there's literally no better opportunity to get into aesthetics in Australia. Every single master that you've been following is on the faculty. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, for a lot of recent graduates at the time, yeah, they were definitely, you know, on their phone more, they're scrolling through Instagram and they're seeing all this and then, you know, they're getting into this mindset of like, oh, all this comparison, how do I get to that kind of level? I mean, it's interesting that you yourself, you're saying as a more senior clinician, that you kind of went through that same kind of um, um, uh, experience, but then that kind of um, didn't, uh, I would say, uh, hinder your, it kind of compelled you or inspired you to take it to that next level and then to get into this um, diploma. The thing is, 
we are all always students right anyone who's not growing anyone who's not learning anyone who believes they're too good to learn anymore is probably getting outdated that's what dentistry is right so uh, as a, as a, you know when i was new to dentistry i did believe that i would get to a point where i wouldn't have to study anymore or uh, you know where i'd know everything but you know that's not possible <laughs> that's never possible <laughs> Yeah, you you end up you realize after you do a five year degree, no, the study never stops. You, there's always more to learn. If you're not growing, you're dying. Exactly. The biggest lesson you learn is you know you know very little. The more you the more you study, you realize you don't know anything at all. Yeah. So then you decide you you see all these um, Instagram people, but you also hear these you know great clinicians, and you're seeing their work as well. And they're starting this course. Um, the ACDP, um, Aesthetic and Restorative Dentistry, and then you decide to sign up? Absolutely. Uh, I applied for them. So they, they had a little bit of a screening process. They had applications and stuff. Uh, so I applied for the course. I was uh, lucky I got in. And uh, yeah, that was mostly it. Now, the whole pandemic situation did, you know, muck our dates around a fair bit, uh, starting dates and all that. But uh, yeah. That's how I got in. So how are you finding that course yourself? These are mostly clinicians. These are all clinicians who not only are really good at their craft, but then they're really humble and approachable people as well, right? Um, I mean, Chris in particular, despite all his qualifications, despite all his experience, still reads more literature than possibly anyone else I know or anyone else in the industry for that matter, right? Um, so that has been a very humbling experience realizing how little you know is always a humbling experience mm. but then being able to grow as a clinician seeing your work improve uh, having more predictable results is always quite rewarding mm. so what you're saying is you were probably would you would i be wrong in saying that earlier on you're doing all these um maybe composite weekend kind of courses and all that kind of stuff and then, you know, they were giving you tips and tricks along the way, but it wasn't until you kind of dived into this, you could kind of really see um, or get more predictable results, whereas before it really wasn't. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, being able to begin with the end in mind is, uh, is something that only a comprehensive course can teach you. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, your goal is to be an aesthetic and you started off trying to be a full mouth so would you say this is kind of how you imagined the path to take going through surgical to kind of get through the um, emergency kind of cases going through the ortho um, to learn about occlusion in the full mouth kind of situation and then kind of getting into the cosmetic um, side of things to achieving that goal of being a uh, full mouth rehab or has that slightly changed a little bit you're, you're, you're spot on there as in, and this is, this is what, you know, this is the same advice that I gave to one of my best friends who's, uh, who's specializing in the US right now. Always have a map, right? So my map was as uh, soon as I got my license, as soon as I started practicing to get the basics down first, right? So surgical extractions, at least being able to diagnose ortho comprehensively, um, relatively decent endo and all that. So get your basics down first, and then before you invest in more complex CPD, uh, go learn communication, go learn management, go learn influencing your staff, your patients, and then come around to more complex, more comprehensive cases uh, and, and, and CPD. Mm, yeah. Because there's no point in investing heavily in really expensive courses at the beginning of your career when you can't convert cases. 
Yeah. When you don't even know if the practice where you're working is where you will be working, you know, five years time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, talking about communication and, you know, converting cases, you've actually done some communication courses. Was it with um, Dr. Um, Kino Shah? That's right. So I've done communication courses with uh, Kinar, of course, Mark Hassid. I've done all of Prime's courses, all of them as well. Um, and probably some others that also Lincoln Harris, uh, Rapid Efficient Treatment Planning. But then Kinar's have been quite helpful because just like Jeff, uh, he, you know, Jeff might have mentioned Kinar offers a full comprehensive system of treatment. And it's not just communication with him. It's reading people, right? So being able to know what motivates people, being able to know and understand what someone's fears are, uh, being able to understand how someone makes a decision is more important than just using, you know, a, a language pattern that can influence someone. Right. So can you dive into that a little bit more? Because some of our listeners are probably wondering what you're trying to say, but not really saying. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so Jeff touched on this as well, right? And it sounds like a little bit of hocus pocus. But then when you go to communication courses, most communication courses will teach you language patterns or specific words that you can use and all that, right? But none of that matters uh, unless you really understand what motivates someone, right? So the whole NLP thing, and it's, you know, I can't really dive into all of that because it's quite a massive pool there. Yes. But to, 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 to summarize, uh, people who use NLP, so neuro-linguistic programming, Tony Robbins, Barack Obama, Oprah, Right. So we know that all these people really know how to bring out emotions when they talk. And that's something if you can do as a clinician, as a business owner, it's not just for your patients, right? Communication is something you use on your staff as well. Mm -hmm. How do you build connections? How do you build rapport across cultures, across, across educational differences, across financial differences? Yes. So being able to understand people, being able to understand the differences in people, being able to understand what motivates people, what drives them is more important than just using language or words. Mm -hmm. And that's what NLP is. That's what a, a comprehensive communication program should cover for you. Fair. That's I, hope that I hope that's clearer. Yeah, definitely. I think, <laughs> I think, thank you for diving that into that a little bit more because a lot of people, I mean, I say graduates, especially they hear communication. I got to get into that earlier. I got to get into that early, but you know, sometimes it's, you know, they don't know what they're kind of trying to get out of it. It's just like, are these, am I just picking up some tips and tricks? Like what's the philosophy is what you're trying to say. Um, you need to get out of it. Absolutely. Mm. So as a clinician as well, we all reach a point where we might want to contemplate about, you know, practice ownership, being a specialist or being a super GP or even starting a family. Can you share your thoughts on that? So I'll start with the first one, ownership, right? Now, Navneel Kashyap talks about this all the time. Um, so ownership may not be for everyone, right? And at the same time, most of us believe that that's the next step. Once you've been practicing for some time, you should own a practice. Uh, the one thing you really need to know, one thing that people really need to know is, of course, if you are earning more than a certain amount annually as an associate, getting into ownership would actually be a bad idea, would, would be a really bad decision. You'd end up losing money uh, unless you get into a practice which is genuinely productive, right? So if you're an associate, if you're a high producing associate, buying a single chair or a two chair practice getting into something like that is actually not a good idea unless you really don't like working with other people 
unless the only reason you want to get a practice is so you can work by yourself so you don't have a boss yeah uh, specializing of course if you really love a subject get into it don't get into it for money i believe i mean if you love uh, an area of dentistry definitely get into it uh, same thing super gp right if you love being able to do multiple things get into that and family if you really want that i mean the one thing one needs to know you know the thing that you need to ask yourself is what makes you happy what you really want following the herd running the rat race it makes a lot of people really unhappy right we see that all the time these days especially now when people have had to live with the, their choices in lockdown mm, yeah 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 and how's that and i mean did that is that something that you kind of went through the, that kind of thought process um when it came down to your situation absolutely i always wanted to be an owner right because that's what you dream like you know once you hit a certain level of experience you want to be a practice owner uh, but i was lucky that i got to manage practices for primary dental and for bupa and that gave me sort of uh, an ownership experience without risking my own money mm-hmm. <laughs> i had an easy out and i kid you not i used to have a full head of hair before i got into ownership and management <laughs> Yeah. In, in the first six months or nine months of uh, practice management, I lost all my hair. So yeah, it's not for everyone. Uh, if you want to get into ownership, do the right courses, learn management, right? Don't just buy a practice and try and wing it. That's never going to work. Yeah. And, and I guess you can say that, you know, after getting out of it, the hair's all growing back now, hey? <laughs> uh, uh, part, partly, partly, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about that. So, you know, you, you got to see as a, you went through the experience of being a, a DA, you went through the experience of being a receptionist into um, corporate practice management. You know, um, can you explain a little bit more about what you just talked about um, in terms of what you kind of saw? Because um, some people think about uh, they want to know a little bit more about that because they don't know because they're only as an, a, an associate, you're just working as a clinician and then on the outside it looks like everything's all you know not it can't be too difficult as much as you might hear about it but you're what you're saying is it's very difficult uh, most new owners will realize this within the first year or two of ownership uh, which is why um these days we have owners you know who don't have the ego uh, who admit that ownership is difficult and go back to being associates there's a there's there's a growing number of people who do that right now uh, to summarize working by yourself is easy getting someone else to work for you is very very challenging mm-hmm. uh, staffing issues hr issues marketing because gone are the days when you open up a building and people walk in, right? Especially in really saturated markets like Sydney and Melbourne. If you're going to be an owner, A, uh, you need to have done your research. You need the right location. You need to find a market that suits you. You need to uh, be really on top of marketing. And I can't stress this enough, right? I mean, um, uh, once again, Jeff, Kinar, these guys uh, are on top of the marketing and their practices are growing even in really competitive areas. But as an associate, hardly anyone is aware of what these things even are, right? Mm. Uh, Do you know how your Google AdWords work? Do you know how the whole SEO thing works? Uh, Do you know how websites work? Do you know how uh, a patient picks you as a dentist? How does a patient's journey begin, right? So it's a seven-step journey. You know, uh, someone looks you up online after having heard of you. 
they, they, they reach your website, they reach a, reach a specific landing page that you design, designed specifically for them. And I won't bore you with like details, but how many associates have thought of that, right? And unless you're on top of all of those things, uh, buying a practice in Sydney or Melbourne, and especially buying a small one or two chair practice, which isn't even going to produce more than what you would earn as an associate, right? So you're buying into all this headache without actually making any more money out of it, without actually getting any more satisfaction out of it. Mm. More likely, you're just going to burn out, stop enjoying dentistry, and just work towards paying the bills. Right. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. So, yeah, I mean, talking about struggles, have there been any particular struggles in on your CPD or dental journey? Because I know, like you mentioned, you know, you came from India, and then you obviously had to go through the ADC to kind of get through it. And, we all know that, well, not all of us, but, you know, we've all heard the stories about how that's not an easy journey. So the exams by themselves, the exams themselves were relatively, I found them not very challenging. Paying the fees for the exams, that's the challenging part. But, you know, everyone's got some sort of challenges with that. Uh, wasn't the most fun part of my life. Wouldn't want to go back there. But at the same time, I was really lucky. I was really blessed uh, that I met a lot of, amazing people that really helped me along the journey, right? So um, there was uh, there was Mark Salakis, who's one of the clinical directors for Bupa. Uh, I was, I used to work at, as his assistant and he encouraged me to take my exams. He, he, he convinced me that I would make a decent dentist someday. Uh, there were, you know, there's Dr. George Lee and, uh, and his partner, uh, who, who were one of the first directors for Bupa as well, uh, for Dental Corp when it used to be. They took me in as family. They helped me out. They, they mentored me. They trained me. Wow. Even when I was doing my final exams, my, my boss in Western Australia, who's a UWA grad, he bought me my first pair of loops, right? So, wow. I mean, exactly. And so as unpleasant as that time may have been, I made friends I you know who became family, people who helped me out then, and people who mean the world to me, right? Because it's at, in those situations that you realize who's your real friend. Yeah, I guess when, when times are tough, you know, who's gonna reach out and kind of get you through those hurdles? Exactly. Yeah, well talk to me about that. I mean, talk to me about the mindset, you know, you're in at that time, because you said it was a tough time. Um, the exams itself you're saying was not that difficult, but it was, you know, when it came down to the fees and all that kind of stuff. Talk to me about that. Um, so, the exams themselves. Now, I'm not sure if a lot of your re readers have actually, uh, uh, viewers have actually gone through those exams themselves. Uh, but uh, it is an interesting system here in Australia. Um, a lot of us, you know, local grads, overseas grads, people who've been practicing for some time, people who are on the ADA, do believe that a system like the US would be better where international dentists come in and do a bridging course or a, or a condensed course, right? So uh, I think I ended up spending between preparing for the exams, the actual exam fees set up and courses uh, about 35 to $50,000 mm -hmm. um, over a few years. Yeah. And you're saying and, that's obviously uh, not um, some, yeah, no, um, that's a lot of money. And you, most graduates, I mean, maybe on a dental assistance income, yeah. On a dental assistance pay, that's not, <laughs> that's not fun. Yeah. Like I said, I was really lucky. I met. Uh, uh, I was working with some amazing dentists who were not only good dentists, but who really helped me out. Mm, yeah, because I mean, like, like you said, it's not easy um, having that much amount of money to pay for on a on a dental assisting 
um, kind of income, income yeah. you know, that's probably something in your mind that, you know, that's weighing heavy on you. Do you kind of continue pursuing it? Do you kind of, you know, just give it up? Because I, I know, like you said, you, um, it's, yeah, big hurdle. And you said that the people around you were kind of like, no, you've got to push through. It's the right thing to do. It's going to, you know, be the light at the end of the tunnel. The thing is, for most people, there is no light at the end of the tunnel, right? Because if you fail your final exams, it's absolutely nothing. It doesn't count for anything. So either you make it all the way or you go back to assisting or doing something else completely because half a pass <laughs> doesn't get you anything, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. For, I believe, uh, about 80% of people who take these exams, uh, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. All their efforts go to waste because uh, at the best of times, um, the exam has anything between uh, a 5% to a 20% pass rate. Right, yeah. 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 So, I mean, talking about those tough times, I, I've heard a story where, you know, you one time forgot a train, your train pass at your place and then you needed some money to actually get to work but the train trip was quite expensive or something. And I don't know, can you tell me the rest of that yeah, story? Right. So, uh, so that one, um, so back then I used to work for a really um, well-known cosmetic dentist uh, slash prosthodontist in Sydney. Uh, and I was on, because you know, international student and all that, uh, $175 a week, <laughs> which uh, if you're living in Sydney and paying rent in Sydney, that doesn't cover much, no. right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so getting to work, uh, you know, uh, I got locked out of my apartment and then I could wait for my housemates to return and let me in, but then I'd miss work and then missing work. If you're making 175 bucks a week, you can't afford to miss work. Right. Uh, so there was this guy who was, uh, so this is when I was, uh, yeah. So there was this guy who was a recently graduated dental technician who I knew from, uh, um, you know, TAFE because I was studying to be a dental technician as well. And uh, he lent me $30 now, of course, Back then, I didn't even have $30 in my bank account at all in the entire world, right? Mm -hmm. And this guy didn't expect anything. He'd been through the same struggle as his wife uh, studied dentistry and he studied dental technology. Uh, he'd been an international student as well. And he just gave that money to me. And obviously, that meant more to me than anything else I had in this world because I didn't even have $30 altogether. And he gave me $30. And it wasn't about the money as such, but that was... Uh, just the kindness, right? Just the gesture. Someone wants to help you out just because they've been through a hard time themselves. Mm, wow, what an amazing story. So fast forward, you know, you've, you're you accredited now. Now you've come into, now you're a dentist and that can practice in Australia and you're in a very saturated market in but Sydney. You know, you've got Melbourne, you know, these are very saturated markets. But then, um, can you share your thoughts um, on that because um, you know you, you work between different practices now or you've had to move um, in some cases as well now saturated markets yes now, markets can be saturated but uh, if you get into the right marketing circles if you learn marketing properly if you learn how to manage practices properly uh, that is a code that can still be cracked it's not an easy code to crack, but uh, a lot of people in my close friend circle do it over and over. They thrive in these high pressure environments, highly competitive environment. Uh, and at the same time, if you want to build a practice, uh, aesthetic practice, then you need to be in a metro area, right? Now for myself, I've done both. 
and and the freedom you get by not yet being an owner by being an associate is lockdown hits melbourne you can always go rural now rural practice is satisfying as well but then most clinicians need to work out what sort of environment they want to work in what sort of uh, areas they want to work in as well right now if you're doing um, cosmetic aesthetic restorative work uh, rural markets might not be the best for that Mm-hmm. So talk to me about that, because because you work in a a metro and a rural um, clinic, and they're quite far away from each other. Um... So when I moved to Australia, I made this decision, right, that uh, if to to be the kind of person that I want to be, if if I need to go to the darkest corners of hell to be the kind of dentist I want to be, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Now driving an hour and a half is much more pleasant than going to the darkest corners of hell, especially especially if you get to work in a really positive environment, right? So so regional practices that are doing well, or even metro practices that are doing well, finding the right kind of practice, the right kind of working environment is a lot more important to me than the location of the practice, right? Mm-hmm. So by, by working in Ballarat, I get to play with all the toys that I can ask for, get to use the best materials that I can imagine uh and I, I read a paper a new technique comes out we can you know we've got the freedom to to order that stuff in and just play around mm-hmm. and by playing around i don't mean we experiment on real people but <laughs> if you're confident in trying something the practice has the freedom and the resources and the patient flow to to really really grow as a clinician right yeah yeah i think that's interesting that you put it into that because like I say, a lot of our community, our listeners are probably thinking, you know, when they're graduating, I want to just be in these particular um, cities and I want to, you know, that's where all my friends are. That's, you know, we're all in our 20s and 30s and everyone's in the city and that's where it's all happening. I just want to be there. I don't want to have to travel too far away. But what you're saying is, guys, you need to, it's not about that. It's about, you know, finding that passion um in the practice and you know if you can find the right uh, i would say mindset or culture within the practice that aligns with what you are about as well that's gonna take you further um in your career as opposed to maybe that short-term kind of mindset absolutely because i see a lot of uh, fresh grads end up in jobs where they're essentially just doing hygiene work right or maintenance or maybe a filling once a week or you know maybe a filling a day or something if they're really lucky now if they knew going in that they have a choice they can either in five years time be a master clinician you know be known for their art have a satisfying day at work learn earn (laughs) and and be the kind of clinician they wanted to be when they were at uni or five years from now struggle to get a mortgage, struggle to buy a, you know, minimum studio sized apartment because their income hasn't grown because they're still doing the same procedures that they did five years ago. What would your viewers choose? Mm. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's a question. I guess they got to really, yeah, think about, about themselves and really take a hard, good look at themselves. So one thing you know a lot of graduates talk about is wanting mentoring people interpret that differently people want to be held by the hand some people want to be checked over the shoulder once in a while some people just want to be the fly on the wall um what's your thoughts on you know recent graduates looking for that mentoring when they're looking for the practices as well 
looking for mentoring is absolutely fine. That is, you know, for most uh, fresh grads, that is a key criteria in looking for work, right? Looking for the right job. Now, the style of mentoring, I believe, may not be as important as a mentor itself, right? So finding the right mentor is more important than finding the style of mentoring. And look around, right? I mean, uh, this is something that Jeff mentioned as well. There are some very unpleasant people in the dental industry, but as a whole, by and large, we have amazing people who love what they do, who, who love to talk about what they do and what they enjoy, and who are more than happy to help out, you know, if you just reach out. Mm. So a mentor might not have to be, might not need to be at the practice where you're working itself, right? Just reach out, uh, find out, uh, look up someone who's doing the kind of work that you want to do in five years' time. Talk to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? That, that's always going to help. Yeah. And that's what you found when you were kind of um, looking to take it to that next level for your own um, clinical work. You just kind of went ahead and messaged them, whether it be online um, and see if they would be willing to kind of um, take on that kind of uh, mentoring. Sometimes that can be difficult uh, for both the other person as well. So how would you say uh, people might make that transition or that approach uh, better per se? You know, sometimes maybe it might be providing more records or um, information, you know, how do they make that uh, asking for help easier? There's multiple ways of doing that. Records definitely help, but I believe building a relationship before you ask for help is is a better idea. Mm-hmm. So uh, most of us are nerds, right? Most of us love what we do. Most of us love talking about what we do. And most of us don't have enough people around us who have, you know, appreciate how much effort we put into doing what we do. So if someone comes along, if a student comes along who really appreciates the work and who really wants to learn, most of us are happy to help. But then, you know, building a relationship, having that sort of uh, comfort before someone just sends up a whole bunch of photos on social media <laughs> asking what they should do next. Uh, that helps. Yes. So basically, everyone that's going to reach out to Dr. Ahmed, please, you know, just try to get to know him first before you try to throw him a whole bunch of images and records because he's not going to be able to help you straight away. Uh, honestly, I don't believe I'm qualified enough to do do do. To, to help someone out in that way. I mean, I'd be more than happy to in any way that I could. Uh, but then there's so many senior clinicians, there's so many masters and gurus out there who'd be much better suited than I am to, to, to you know, to, to mentor someone. So share with us where you hope your ideal clinical or non-clinical day would look like in five years time and what kind of CPD do you want to do to kind of get to that point? Yeah, because uh, Jeff and I, Jeff and myself, because we've had the same mentor, Kinar, our ideal day in five years time uh, looks quite similar. Mm -hmm. So hopefully no more than two or three clinical days in a week, uh, doing the procedures you enjoy and love. For me, that would be smile makeovers, aesthetic and restorative work, uh, good consults, good treatment planning. And uh, on non-clinical days, being able to to mentor associates, uh, being able to, to train staff, because of course, this is something associates don't realize as well. Running a successful practice requires ongoing, repetitive training and retraining of front desk and chairside staff as well. So right. hopefully I'll be able to do that in five years' time. Right. As in like build up those systems slowly and then just kind of weave into it. Even after you build up systems, the thing is 
fact of the dental industry is it is a high turnover industry people do tend to slip up and at the same time in addition to staff that's that might be new you've got procedures that are new right you've got to adapt you've got to continuously adapt mm. to a changing market yeah. so training and ongoing training for staff is a key part of running a successful practice mm-hmm. and tell us what your non-clinical day would look like too then uh, non-clinical day would be staff training, associate training, and maybe, you know, so same as Chris, I mean, not the same level as Chris, but I love my food as well. Maybe, maybe I'll still be around Melbourne. Maybe I'll still be, be able to go out, try out some new restaurants. Yes. <laughs> if, maybe if it's winter and we're not in lockdown, I might be able to go to the, to the mountains. Mm-hmm. Where's the best Sichuan hotpot place? Ooh. Uh, my current favorite is Panda Hot Pot. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh, are, are you from Melbourne? I'm not sure. Have no, I'm you... from Sydney. Oh, so, yeah. So, Sydney, with, with Sydney, one of my favorites is the uh, Memory Tongue Place. Okay. Have you been there? I have not, but I, I'll definitely look it up after this. Yeah. Yeah, no, so Panda Hot Pot is one of my favorites. David's is pretty nice as well. But yeah, that's the reason I find it hard to move away from Melbourne completely because there's so much good food. <laughs> yes, I, I heard the hot pots was your, was your jam. <laughs> absolutely, it absolutely is. So just to wrap it all up, what would, you, what would be some words of wisdom that you would like to leave for the budding young dentist who's about to graduate? So two things. So first up, we've all heard this. There's things that you enjoy. There's things that, are you, that you're good at. And there's things that the world is ready to pay you for, right? Find out where all three meet and you'll be a happy chappy forever, right? And secondly, most people when they first graduate will be making more money than they've ever made in their lives before, right? And it's very easy to get carried away, right? So when you make that kind of money, respect your money, respect your time, respect your money, use your time well and use your money well. Don't just buy the fanciest, most expensive car you can you know, get a loan on. Put that money in areas where it'll grow, be it investments or be it CPD that's going to pay you and return your investment many times over in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I guess uh, is, that's one thing you see all the time, right? People just blow up all their money on fancy cars as soon as they graduate. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, I, mean, I, mean I can't put it on Instagram. I, people can't see if I put all this money away. I can't post about it. How do I share it to the people so I know they know I'm doing all right as a dentist? Exactly. Yeah. So that, 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 I mean, that would really help most people. I wish I'd known all that in my first years, but then that makes a difference. Mm. Well, Dr. Rez Ahmed, thank, there's so many more questions I actually want to ask you, but that's all the time we have for today. Um, if you could let the people know how they can find you or what you've got going on in your life. Absolutely. So I've got my Facebook page and my Instagram page and yeah, so reach out if there's anything I can help anyone with. I'm more than happy to. And if I can connect them to someone who might be better suited to help them, I'd be happy to do that as well. And uh, yeah, no, so thank you for your time. It was lovely talking to you as well, Lawrence. And uh, hopefully we'll chat soon again. Hey, CP Junkie podcast fan. It's your boy, Dr. Lawrence Stone here, just dropping in to let you know how much I appreciate your listens. We've officially reached 1,400 views and over 40 release episodes. Cue the applause, please. 
We've also just reached 35 subscribers on our YouTube channel. In this competitive niche climate, that can be very difficult. Thank you again for riding this wave with us, and I hope you get a lot out of each episode. I am always trying to dive deeper into our guests' journeys, talking about their highs and lows. As we all know, no dental career is ever smooth sailing, and I don't want you to feel like you're alone in your journey. One thing I've learned is that you don't know who is listening and even they can get something powerful out of a comment made by our guests. So again, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe and share it with a friend.